stay tuned for The Lynn Show. Today, I'm playing what I hope is going to turn out to be only the first half of my interview with actor, writer, director, teacher, Frank Galati. In this interview, Frank talks about how he became the extraordinary individual uh, that he is. We were supposed to talk about his direction of 1776 for the Oslo Theater, but we never got around to it before he had to rush off for rehearsal. So um, I am going to play a song from the original cast album of 1776. I uh, played, if you were listening, you heard Jeff Parker, who is John Dickinson in that production, and also Michael Rice, who is the musical director of that production. And I did get to play some songs, but I love this one that I'm going to play at the end of the show, and I didn't get a chance to play it. So I'm going to play it now in conjunction with, again, what I hope is only the first half of my interview with this amazing, interesting, charming, thoughtful, serious, accomplished band. So hang on. Here come the show. Hearing from an inner voice Finding choice where there's no choice With gentle prodding from the voice Oh, you really can is about being the person you really are, not the person you think you have to be. 
not the person other people are, not the person someone told you you had to be or even told you you were, not even the person you may currently think you are, but the person you really are. Unfortunately, too many people have experiences in their childhood which discourage them from being some of the things they really are. And because children are so flexible and can pretend that they are not this thing, whatever it was that brought a consequence they didn't want, many people come into adulthood having forgotten something significant, sometimes many things, sometimes the most significant things about themselves. In my show, I interview people who make their living or their life with an art. Because when you listen to them, you can hear what it sounds like to be who you really are. And today's interview is not only not an exception, it's Frank Galati proves the rule. He was meant to be all of the things that he is, although he didn't know it. He says in this interview that he had no ambition or intention to go into the theater, and yet he has made a life of the theater in every way that you can, teaching, acting, and directing, writing. Uh, the man is all about theater, and how he arrived at that is the, um, is the text of this interview. Just enjoy the gift of listening to the extraordinary Frank Galati. Okay, I am here with Frank Galati in, in some room at the Oslo. Yes, committee room, I think. Oh, it has a title. I think so, you know, <laughs> board room. Board, but we are not going to. No, be. we are not. I interview people who make their living or their life with an art. Right. And right. that's clearly true of you. Well, I try, yes. Well, no. <laughs> I well. think that's... <laughs> I think that's... <laughs> well, and you clearly have succeeded for years and years and years. So, now, I know um, that you're a director and an actor and a writer. Yes. Yes. And all of those things somehow connected to theater? Yes. If you were going to define yourself, how would you do it? Well, uh, it's been um, fascinating in the, uh, through the adventure of my life, if I could put it that way, to see how interconnected the things that I've had an opportunity to do really are. Uh, I thought I wanted to be a teacher when I was graduating from college and I went on to get my master's degree. But while I was working on my master's degree, this wonderful, very inspired professor at Northwestern who was the main acting teacher, her name was Alvina Krauss, and she was revered um, in the Midwest, and really, I mean, actually, nationally, because students of hers included Charlton Heston, and. Patricia Neal and Paula Prentice and actually some of the actors who were in the Broadway production of 1776 were students of hers, Ron Holgate, William Daniels. Mm -hmm. So while I was working on my master's degree, Miss Krause was making a first attempt to 
bring her students into the professional arena in Chicago. So I got my equity card working in a small theater on the south side of Chicago, uh, acting in three plays that she directed, um, and even designing one of them. I designed one of them, the sets and the uh, props. But I was doing that while I was working on my master's, and I, I, I found it very interesting that the scholarship and the reading about literature and text and poetry and language, and certainly drama, was so uh, useful in you know working as an actor, doing eight shows a week, performing for small audiences, struggling to stay alive, making very little money. But somehow the the, the conversation between what I was doing in the classroom, what I was studying. And then, as, as I went on, after my master's... Wait, I, I want to stop you for a second. Um, because I want to ask you the question I always ask. Yeah, sure. And it, it predates this. Yeah. Um, the question I always ask is, do you remember the very first moment in your life when you... Uh, became aware of, became interested in, were, um, uh, it was triggered, this idea of theater, acting, stories, performance, any of that? Do you remember? Y yeah. Uh, yeah, I do. I do. Uh, <laughs> uh, the little house that we lived in where I grew up was in rural Illinois. Uh, far enough away from Chicago so that it was uh, country, it was farmland. It, Northbrook was a little village. Now it's a very affluent suburb and, you know, it's 20 minutes from the loop. And, but then, uh, in, in the early 50s, when I was a kid, it was just a little country village. And we had a living room window that was, um, I guess, a picture window is what we called it in those days. And at night, it became a mirror. And uh, when television first showed up, and my parents and my sister would watch television in that. About how old were you? Well, um, about 10, maybe, or 9. Okay. Um, I could stand in the little vestibule that was opposite this picture window and act up and be goofy <laughs> and make faces, faces. Mm -hmm. and dance and wave at myself. <laughs> Watching yourself and becoming aware of yourself and, and your instrument, you know, you don't know what you're doing, but you're, you know, you're, you're acting up, you're, you're clowning. Yes. My grandmother... Well, you're creating, actually, Well, you're, right? you're, you're creating, and you're studying yourself, you know, you're studying the way you can mug and make your face look and twist your face and make your lips uh, do goofy things and uh, your ears. And my grandmother used to say, you be careful if you look like that in a mirror, your eyes are going to stick like that, your face is going to stay like that. Uh, that's a very, very early memory of 
the impulse to show off. Well, yeah. And showing off is what it's all about. Mm -hmm. In fact, it, display, the word kabuki, for instance, in the Japanese theater, it means talent and, and performance virtuosity. So I, mean, I think when you're, when you're sort of in your bones a theater person, uh, it's, it's that kind of antic behavior that gets you started. And that was my whole personality. Oh, it still is. I mean, but when I was a kid, I was funny. You were. And, and people laughed at me. And I knew how I, lear I learned how to get laughs. Okay, so now you said uh, sister, sisters. Sister. I have one sister. Younger. Older, younger. So you're the oldest. I'm the oldest, yeah. Yes. Uh, you, my sister's a year and a half younger. And you're the only boy, so yeah, you're the... You're yeah, the yeah, man of the child. Right, exactly. Of, of the children, right. yes. And so, um, did your family find you amusing? Yes, yes, they did. <laughs> and uh, my, my fellow students were, uh, you know, friends who encouraged my um, crazy behavior. Um, and then... Uh, when I was in high school, I lived across the street from an old woman who was often left alone. Um, she was very old, and she had some kind of skin problem on her legs, and her legs were all bandaged up. And in the summer, she would sit out in the backyard, and the flies would gather around her and come land on the bandages on her legs. It always made a very vivid, vivid impression on me. And I used to go over there just to talk to her because she was such an interesting old character and, uh, and because I felt sorry for her. Well, I just started writing not so much what she said to me, but what I sort of thought she was thinking. I was kind of projecting myself into the character of this old lady. And it turned into a play. And this is in high school? Uh, in high school, yeah. Okay, now wait a second. I'm just curious. Um, were you writing before this? No. No? No. Wow, so we, we owe her the... Well, she was the inspiration. The catalyst, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, when you say it turned into a play, mm -hmm. did you know what a play was? I did, yes, I did. Uh... By that time, um, in high school, I had seen and been, I was in Already? Our, our town. Oh, in our town. Yeah. Oh, okay. I had a tiny part. I was one of the baseball players. My line was, hey, George. <laughs> but, uh, so I, and I, that play is an extraordinary introduction to theater and yes. to American theater. Yes. So, well, uh, it's interesting because it's a, it, for me anyway, it's an introduction to a certain kind of theater. Yes. Right? You learn later that it's a certain kind of theater. Right. But it also, uh, it's the kind of theater which is consciously theatrical that uh, teaches you not only about the American families in Grover's Corners, but it sort of teaches you about storytelling and about... Um, the imagination uh, about the power of theater to create and project a world with nothing. 
nothing but language, right. nothing but words, and the willingness of the audience to share the creation of the reality to of believe the world, it. to totally and completely believe it. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so, so what's interesting to me here is that um, you know, a little while ago you were talking about you know getting your masters and and being having being impacted by the. Uh, I don't know, confluence of, you know, literature and research and um, um, it's all about, it's all literate. Yeah. So this is funny to me because um, here we have this 10-year-old who's making faces in the mirror, right? Mm -hmm. And it's silly and mm -hmm. it's funny and you define yourself as a funny guy. Well, I mean, <laughs> I admire... Uh, I. I Comedy and the comic is something that draw that I'm very drawn to. I yes, think. but at the same time, here we have you, you know, captured by. It's not funny, our town. No. No, it's 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 literate. It's serious. It's yes. It's, it's a story, right? Yes. So yes. I don't know. So, so are you saying you had both of these? That you yes. were drawn to both of these? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, I mean, again, our town. It's true that Emily dies, but it's not a tragedy. It, it's, its form is comic, and its, its modality is comic because it's about victory. It's about survival. It's, it's, it's about transcendence because to posit that the dead are being weaned away from life, are kind of waiting, hovering over their own graves in the cemetery. And when Emily dies and she's welcomed into the uh, chorus of the dead, she says, oh, if I could just go back one more day, if I could just have one day, one day, and they warn her, don't do it. Don't do it. That's the, it, that is the, it's not her death that's, that's devastating in the play. It's, it's that morning in the, in the that's in right. breakfast it's, that's it's, devastating. It, that's right, it's her birthday. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And she says, Mama, look at me. me, don't you know? See me. Yes. See me. I mean, does anybody... It still makes me cry. Well, sure, of course, <laughs> because it's the most profound question. I mean, does anybody ever live life fully at any given moment? Is anybody really fully there? So it's, it's a play that... It, because it, you know, it reflects, when I say comedy, the, the mishaps and the obstacles of everyday life, courtship, marriage, family, the drunken choir master, the nervous parents at the wedding, the, the kid brothers and sisters, the baseball players, the whole world of Grover's Corners is looked at in a, in a kind of comic light. But on, on the philosophical level, it asks incredibly deep questions, the kinds of questions that you can only really ask in a work of art. You know, you can't ask in an essay. It's only through the agency of, of drama and image and poetry and language. Does anyone ever really understand life? Emily says, and I think the stage manager says, saints and poets, maybe, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's it's interesting. Um, when you said, you know, you can't do it in an essay, um, I think you can do it in an essay, but what you can do in an art form is you can speak directly to the unconscious. Yes. 
You know, the essay will yeah. speak to the conscious mind, but the that's right. But the art will speak to the unconscious, and in that way, yeah. it, it touches something very deep. Yes. That may not even be conscious. You may not that's even right. know that you're experiencing. That's right. Right. Yeah. yeah, I think so. Okay, so we have you in our town, clearly um, captured. Clear, right? Right. And um, yes, yes, captured up to a point. I mean. Um, I was I was compelled enough by the magic of theater to start r r this little writing exercise, which then my teacher, uh, who was the director of our town, said, "Oh, you've written a little play," and he read it and he said, "Well, you should do it. You should direct it, and we'll we'll put it on." Oh my God! Well, so this was. You know, I mean, this was just being given to you over and over again as it opportunities, was. right? Yes, yes, it was. I was very, very lucky. So I got to put on my little play. I cast it. I directed it. And and Dr. Lane, he became Dr. Lane after uh, he went back to university. At this time, he was a young high school teacher. But he he said, I'm going to leave you alone. I don't want to come to any rehearsals. You do it all yourself, and you do it with your friends, and we'll put it on in our theater. And what um, a remarkable guy! Yeah, he was. He well, Mr. Lane went on to finish his PhD, and then he did not return to high school teaching. He went to join the faculty at Illinois State University in Bloomington Normal. And we remained friends, of course, after I graduated from high school, and he knew about my college life. And I was a graduate student, and he called me. He was on the faculty down there, and he said, uh, Frank, I'd like you to come down and have a look at a couple of my students. I think I've got an amazing batch of kids, and I'd love for you to see them and critique them and work with them uh, over a period of a couple okay, of days. Okay, now wait a second. What had you done? What were you doing that made him think that this would be something he would want you for? I, I was in graduate school at, at, at Northwestern what? University, and I was studying performance. I began in theater. Miss <sighs> Krauss, the professor I mentioned, was uh, on the faculty then. But I transferred from the theater department into this little department, which was focused on the study of all kinds of literature through performance. This is a specialty. This yes, is a tiny a little specialty. Yes, that's right. And at that time, it was called the Department of Interpretation. Oh, lovely. And the textbook that we all used by Charlotte Lee was called Oral Interpretation. And it was about speaking poetry aloud and taking all kinds of texts, short stories, fiction and nonfiction, letters, diaries, journals, and allowing students to come to a real visceral and emotional understanding of these texts by embodying them, by giving them voice and body, uh, rather than just writing. We had to write papers and all that about the literature that we studied. But the, the modality of study, the pedagogical method was performance. And I was more interested in, um, I love my freshman year, I, before I went to Western Illinois University and I transferred to Northwestern, and I, I got very involved in, in English and I loved English literature and stuff. 
So when I came to Northwestern, I was in theater for a while, but then I transferred to this performance studies department. So Mr. Lane, who was my high school teacher, knew that I was directing and acting and, and studying in, in graduate school at Northwestern in the, in the field of performance and criticism. Even though you were still thinking you were going to be a teacher. Well, yeah. I mean, the whole business of graduate school was kind of preparatory to a career as a, as a teacher. So you didn't think you were going to be a performer or no, a director? No, uh, no. No, I had no ambition to, to work in the theater. Little did you know. Little did I know, I guess. <laughs> Although, you know, I was still always working in the theater, even yes. just at school. <laughs> but what I want to tell you is that when I got down to uh, Bloomington Normal to Illinois State, and I went to the acting class. The two people that he was wanting me to see and meet were Laurie Metcalf and John Malkovich. Oh my goodness. And they were at the very beginning of the founding of the Steppenwolf Theater Company. Oh my goodness. So uh, Gary Sinise and Jeff Perry and Terry Kinney, Joan Allen, um, Randy Arney, Tom Irwin, Rondi Reed, um, these early real pioneers in the regional theater movement, they were all students of Mr. Lane. Oh my goodness. And I was a high school student of Mr. Lane. So when I met all these kids for the first time, and they were kids, I mean they were college kids. Mm -hmm. uh, we well you weren't a, that much older than No, no, I right? wasn't. I was right? just a couple of years older. Right. So we had a kind of instant uh, connection. Right. And uh, we remained, you know, in touch. And as their theater company was born in Highland Park, Illinois, which is where I was born, in the basement of a church, they did their first performances, which I attended. And we were always, when Gary Sinise was the artistic director of Steppenwolf, we were always trying to figure out something that we could do together, if I could direct something there. But it never, I mean, years passed and we never seemed to be able to make something happen until I think it was around 1985. And by this time, I had finished my PhD at Northwestern. I was a full-time faculty member there. But I was also being encouraged by my colleagues at the university to continue to work in the professional theater, which I started doing with Miss Krause when I was working on my master's. And already had your equity card. And I already had my <laughs> equity card. And I got involved in several shows in the city. So I was known by other actors and directors. And, you know, the, the Chicago theater family was beginning to be kind of formed in those years. And there were groups like the Organic Theater, which Stuart Gordon had founded. David Mamet was working as an apprentice at the Hull House Theater. And Steppenwolf was being formed. So around 1985 or 86, uh, Gary called me up and said, how would you like to direct You Can't Take It With You with us for our holiday show? Well, the idea of Steppenwolf doing a holiday show was something they had never <laughs> thought of, you know. Right. But they were beginning to realize that they had sort of an, they had something going. And that people were coming. Coming, right. They were selling tickets. Mm -hmm. And they could choose plays that weren't just rock and roll theater, which is the kind of thing that really made them uh, celebrated in the early years. I mean, they did Sam Shepard and Pinter, you know, they did tough uh, uh, 
rock and roll work. Right. And serious. Is serious and, and often violent and, yeah, right. you know, risky and edgy. So you can't take it with you as kind of a, you <laughs> departure. know, a departure for them. But we had a fantastic time. It was a wonderful cast. And again, Mahoney was in it, Amy Morton was in it, Jet Perry, Rondi Reed, Randy Arney, Tom Irwin, and Alan Wilder, and uh, uh, Gary was the artistic director. So we're in the middle of one day of rehearsal, and I was asked on a break to go up, uh, stop up at Gary's office, which I did. And uh, he said, we'd love you to join the company. Would you join the company? was kind of shocked because I never expected to be invited to be a member of the ensemble. But of course I said yes. And he said, and you know, I want to encourage you to think about what you would like to do that you think would be right for our actors, you know, but that really reflects your own interest. And I had been thinking for a couple of years about doing the Grapes of Wrath at school as a school project. But it's such an epic novel, uh, and I thought, well, remember Nicholas Nickleby mm-hmm. was this long eight-hour right. show that came from Great Britain, and I thought, well, maybe we could do something like that with Grapes of Wrath over two nights. And anyway, I proposed the Grapes of Wrath to Gary, and he thought it was, he was, I can still see his face. <laughs> he just l- clicked, you know, with the idea. And they had done Of Mice and Men mm. very successfully. And it had, and a couple of the shows, like um, uh, one Sam Shepard play, I can't at the moment think of what it was, but, and uh, um, Bomb and Gilead, which was a Lanford Wilson play, they had been in New York off-Broadway and gotten wonderful reviews. And it so happened that Elaine Steinbeck, who was John Steinbeck's widow, who lived in Manhattan, was an avid theater goer and someone who, since she was in college, she was a stage manager, she worked in the theater, so she loved the theater. Well, she saw our work in these off-Broadway productions. So when they asked her, you know, there's this little theater company in Chicago that's interested in doing The Grapes of Wrath, she said, oh, I've heard of them, I've seen their work. Wow. Yes, we should give them the right to do oh the script and then let me see it and I'll approve it. And right. So that's a, so, you know, that was a huge event in my life. No kidding. And, uh, and did you write it? I did. I yeah, adapted, right. I adapted right. the novel and, and directed it and we did it in Chicago and then in La Jolla and California and London and then uh, finally right. on Broadway. But it's interesting in retrospect to, see for me just personally for me how far back those roots, roots go yeah. it's exactly right yeah. and, that, and that's that is kind of the thing that is so fascinating to me you can see this mm-hmm. in long careers mm-hmm. you can see this you can see where it begins and yeah. how it is in a way inevitable yeah you know yeah. there is a sense of inevitability mm-hmm. in um yes what are you thinking well, I was just thinking Tony Walton, who was his set designer. And who I interviewed. Oh, yeah. Oh, my wonderful. God, what a wonderful Well, he was guy. here doing he was here. Uh, yeah, uh, the Devil's... The Shaw, Devil's Disciple. Right, I interviewed him. Yeah. And yeah. Dan, who was the devil. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. Well, he's an old friend. We've done shows together. We did opera and musical. He was so tickled to be being 
interviewed as a director. He, he's a wonderful director, a tremendously articulate mm. and sensitive theater artist, but he had been for so many years kind of pigeonholed as right. a set designer. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but he used to say to me, you know, Frank, you didn't pick it, <laughs> it picked you. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I realized he was talking about himself too, that circumstances uh, combine to make essential what it is that you, you do. do. You know, I, I, I have 10, 12 interviews with people where it's blatantly obvious. They didn't even know it was a career. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It, it grabbed them and took them in. Yeah, you know, yeah. you know the, the term bashert? Yeah, oh yeah, sure. That's what it feels yes, like to exactly. me. exactly. You know, yes. and, and I, yes. um, yeah. so yet again, yeah. right? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's mystifying, you know. It's. I thought you were going to say it's mystical. Well, <laughs> and mystical. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I think it's mystifying. Well, I mean, again, this is... It's mystifying unless you believe there is such a thing as, you know, then it's not mystifying. It's just why isn't it clearer? Why doesn't everybody have it? Why does it happen to some? Yeah. You know? Yeah, I know. And I always felt that I just didn't intend to do what, what your life has I wound become. up doing. I, you know, I didn't. So, so many of my friends after college went to New York or Los Angeles and I stayed in Chicago and I I stayed because after I started teaching at the University of South Florida I really loved it and that's why I went back to finish my PhD and I was just unbelievably fortunate to get a job at Northwestern. One of my professors retired just at the time that I, a couple of years <laughs> after I finished my PhD, mm -hmm. and they asked me to step in, and I did, and so, you know, my teaching career was like 42 years. Oh my God. Yeah. And at the same time, developing this other work, I mean, your, your work yes. in the professional theater. Yes, and very often, like with The Grapes of Wrath and lots of other things, I tried things out at school. I would test material with my students. I would get my students to perform and adapt and explore works of literature that sometimes became so interesting to me that I would then take them on to, you know, a kind of larger uh, canvas or a bigger, bigger arena. Recently in Chicago, in the last like five years, I've done a few pieces by Haruki Murakami, who's a Japanese writer, very popular in Asia, and pretty popular in the U.S. in translation. But uh, right after 9-11, I could sense a, um, a level of anxiety in my students that made working on period pieces. I always taught the Dubliners, James Joyce's Dubliners, mm -hmm. and I loved it, and my students loved it too. But I began to sense a sort of a disconnect. Why are we, why are we studying these turn-of-the-century families in this very specific neighborhood of Dublin on Richmond Street, on North Richmond Street. 
why are we going to these pubs and why are we staying home with these parents and why are we dreaming with these young lovers? Uh, it, it was harder to answer that question and I kept looking for something that would be more um, immediate for my students. And I had been reading Murakami and I came across a collection of short stories, which was just published around that time, called After the Quake. <laughs> and it was, like Dubliners, it was six stories that were all connected. And in the case of a After the Quake, it was the 1995 Kobe earthquake, <laughs> where um, I, don't know, I think 65,000 or something people were killed or, or, or injured. And um, each one of the stories with, a, with slightly different even stylistic aspects, one of them is almost like a comic book, and one of them is like a very sort of strange avant-garde film, and another one is like a romance. <laughs> so, but anyway, they're written in very plain very contemporary prose. And although it's Japan, it, it the world is so homogenized I was just going to say it's a modern world. Yeah, I mean, it didn't matter. I mean, it's the same uh, computer technology. It's the same transportation system. It's the same fast food. It's the same clothing labels and shoe <laughs> styles right, and all right, of that. Right. Mm -hmm. So you can't tell that you're in Japan. But what you can tell with each of these stories is that there has been a catastrophic event. Right. And that this catastrophic event is haunting the dreams of these young people. So my students dug it. And we did, I, I must have three or four years used those stories. And then I happened to be talking to Martha Levy, who's the artistic director at Steppenwolf. And I said, I wonder if I could make an evening of theater by combining a couple of these stories. She encouraged me to go ahead. Well, we we did. We, and so I, I did um, After the Quake, and it was very successful in Chicago. We played it also at the Long Wharf mm -hmm. in um, out east, and we played it at the La Jolla Playhouse. The teaching for you got to be kind of a lab. That's right. That's great. Oh yeah, it was it was fantastic. And my students would uh, come to the theater when I was directing. Of course, they would see and they performances would do that, right? when I was. They could acting. see the, yeah, the fruition yeah. of what they were yeah, doing, yeah, and the difference too, if there was between absolutely. what they could do and what professionals could do. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I always felt, you know, confident in talking to students about performance because I was performing. Yes, you know. yes, you know what it is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, and the other thing I was thinking is how, how much teaching and directing are yes. the same, similar Yes, length, yes, right? yes. And, and, you know, playwrights act. Yes. They're the ones who create the characters, and in so doing, they act. Yes, they become they impersonate they, right, the characters. Right. They conjure they embody. up the characters. Mm. They embody right, the characters. Right, 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 right. And directors teach, and teachers direct, right. and directors act. And it's uh, okay. it's all performance. It's uh, well, it's all that standing in front of the mirror. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it, it comes full circle. Rather key. Okay, so now I'm very upset that we're not going to have more time. Well, and we could meet again. 
Um, so, do you mind? No, not at all, no. The truth is, I could listen to and talk to Frank Galati indefinitely, and I would just be one of the Legion. Because if you were listening to the last two weeks, and if you're listening next week, you will have heard Jeff Parker talk about what it's like to work with Frank. Um, Michael Rice talk about what it's like to work with Frank. And next week, Brendan Fox talking about what it was like to work with Frank. And they all say similar things about how extraordinary it is and how wonderful it is to just listen to him, to be in his presence, to watch him work. So again, I do, I'm looking forward to another chance to talk to, to Frank. But just listening to this interview, of course, um, Frank makes the point for me, which is that one can know who one is moment to moment. One can look at um, what is happening. Do I want this? Don't I want this? Does it fit me? Doesn't it fit me? Um, not that many people have Frank's ability simply to put one foot in front of the other and find it where it's meant to be. And of course, as we both seem to say in this interview, um, serendipity, circumstances, the universe, um, destiny, uh, those things seem to conspire for some people, and it certainly seemed to be there for Frank. But for Frank, it, if destiny said, um, here, do this, Frank could, <laughs> you know. He did. He embraced it. And, um, and th that's, that's the message that I am trying so to send, that there is a destiny for you, and you may not yet be living it, but that doesn't mean you can't. So that is the interview I did with Frank when he had directed 1776. And we didn't get around to talking about 1776 because they whisked him away for a rehearsal. And as I said, in the end of this interview, I was hoping we could do it again. And we have done it again. It only took six years. So I will be airing the second part of my interview with the extraordinary Frank Galati, in which he will talk about what happened between the time this interview lets off and now. And also he will talk about his most current project, which is the creation of a brand new musical, which will air next spring at the Oslo Repertory Theater, that is Knoxville which he is doing in collaboration with Lynn Ahrens and Stephen Flaherty. And he will talk a lot about that in the next interview. So as always, I hope you got something that you can use from this show. Something that you didn't know that you now know. Something that amused you. Something that inspired you. Something that will help you to become the person you really are. You see, I'm getting older. My hair is turning gray. Oh, you see my face and figure. I've both seen better days. Well, I won't be retiring. 
sight No, I will not go gentle Into that good night Like some goddamn boomerang No, I won't go with a whimper I am going with a bang You see that I have had my shot My time has come and gone Oh, won't I please get off the stage Let someone else get on Well, I, I won't be relegated Or leave without a fight No, I will not go gentle Into that good night got some tang so you won't hear me simple I may have gotten 